You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. McLean and this is Making a Killing. Interviews exploring the headlines you thought you understood and finding the lessons we can all learn from them. Already in this series, I've spoken with Sahil Patel about Netflix, Mike Isaac about Uber, and Peter Robeson about Boeing. I'm at BethanyMac12 on Twitter. So, I have to admit, I always thought that I, the consumer, had the power in online shopping. I thought I could outsmart any seller. But now I'm beginning to wonder. Just consider this recent headline in The Atlantic, how online shopping makes suckers of us all. Oh dear. The piece asks, could the internet, whose transparency was supposed to empower consumers, be doing the opposite? This worries me. As a working mom, I buy everything, and I mean everything online. I don't like to think that I might be losing. There are broader implications to this question too. Rob Kaplan, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, recently posited that continued low inflation, something that is confounding economists, might be because the internet is bringing consumers so much transparency about the cost of everything that businesses have to perpetually match or even discount prices to win sales. 
It may be that business pricing pressure has been fundamentally reduced as a result of technology, Kaplan told a recent conference. But if that's true, and I'm now questioning whether it is, it appears that business isn't going down without a fight. Let's back up. So in what are beginning to seem like the old days, there was a one price system, meaning when you walked into a store to buy something, that was the price for you and for any other customer who would happen to walk in. It turns out there's a whole history as to how the one price system came to exist and a tale and why it's going away and being replaced with something retailers call dynamic pricing. What Jerry Yuseem explains in his recent Atlantic piece is that this new system of dynamic pricing most closely resembles high-frequency trading on Wall Street. Prices are never set to begin with in this new world. They can fluctuate from hour to hour and even minute to minute, a phenomenon familiar to anyone who has put something in her Amazon cart and been alerted to price changes while it sat there. Of course, it's not just Amazon. An investigation by a local TV station found that Target was offering different prices on its app, depending on where customers were located, inside or outside of an actual Target store. Jerry also writes this about us. They are content to be fooled into paying more if they can keep the belief that they're paying less, that they have agency and agility to find special unbeatable deals only for them. Wow, I thought I was doing just that. But maybe I am, because it's indisputably true at the very same time that we the consumers are also getting significantly smarter. Gone are the days where the sellers of goods had all the inside info and control, or even market leadership in many cases. You can compare prices in real time. So if sellers are getting smarter and buyers are also getting smarter on the same exponential curve fueled by technology, well, who's winning? I'm delighted to have Jerry Yuseem here with me to answer all those questions and more. Jerry, who is now a contributing editor at The Atlantic, is a longtime business journalist. He and I worked together at Fortune back in the glory days of the 1990s and early 2000s, so we've known each other for, oh, I don't want to count how long. And amazingly enough, we now both live in Chicago, so this episode is being recorded in the Windy City. So we have to start with what happened to the price of pumpkin pie spice as Christmas 2015 approached. How did you zero in on pumpkin pie spice? I sort of stumbled upon it. I was looking through a bunch of price history charts of different products on Amazon. And this kind of thing didn't exist before, but there's a few services, one's called Three Camels, that literally you can see the fluctuations of a price day-to-day, hour-to-hour, over the last month, over the last year, and... I had no idea about this until I read your piece, by the way. Some of these, you know, charts, it's like looking at a stock chart. That one just struck me as funny because it's a seasonal ingredient. We all do it, and we all know what it is. So how did you how did you get interested in this story anyway? What, what made you decide to pursue this? Well, it's become kind of a commonplace that as consumers, we're more empowered than ever with data. We can go to showrooms, we can go to Best Buy and see products that we intend to buy elsewhere. We can know the price of anything, anywhere, at any given time through technology. But I and my editor at The Atlantic started to notice there were some weird things going on with Amazon's pricing strategies. At the same time, we also noticed that Amazon had been hiring a lot of economists and really top flight economists who would sort of disappear into the Amazon world. And so it was kind of like going down a wormhole. We looked at what's happening with price online. And the deeper I got into it, 
the more I realized that the whole notion of price, that something that is a fixed price out there that it's set, you know, how much does it cost, is becoming sort of an outdated question. The fluctuations that retailers have learned to do based on what they know about our shopping habits. For instance, at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, we're all at work, we've had lunch, we get kind of lazy, and they raise their prices because we just get less discriminating at that hour. So you'll see this uptick in the morning, they'll then like lower the price because we're more meticulous. I think this whole idea is terrifying. And I, I want to come back to the notion of the role Amazon played with this. But before you, there's a character in your story who's really fascinating, this guy, Guru Harihara. And how did you find him and who is he? He would be what you call sort of an arms dealer in this. An arms dealer. In this, in this contest, he's sort of consumer and retailer. Or you could think of it, he says it's more of like a, a three-way battle. There's Amazon, where he used to work, and he's one of the guys who set up the system that lets other people sell their stuff on Amazon, third-party sellers. And he started this company called Boomerang Commerce that basically other retailers use to match Amazon's pricing algorithms. And it was kind of a, my window into like, you know, it's very hard to, you can't interview an algorithm. But... I went out there in California and basically tried to. And, and so you found a human algorithm, essentially, in Guru Hari Yeah. And he showed me this dashboard. And what it had was, this is what a retailer sees. And it had a bunch of rules you could put in, like if Amazon moves its price down, we respond by moving our price down 10% until it gets to cost or something like that. These were what you call guardrails. And if you don't put those in, things can get out of hand. There was there was one book that because of two algorithms interacting with each other, the price got driven up to $23 million at one point. I wish, I wish that were one of my books. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, before coming on here, I went in and checked out the price history of some of your books. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, it's really, really interesting. And I can't discern any pattern. It's just one of your books today, it's offered the ask price is $17.10. That's respectable. But it's been as high as $35 for one day, like maybe four or five years ago. It was available for $1.23, which That's I'm thinking really someone depressing. just made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is that is crazy. Okay, but wait, come back to this notion that it's a three-way battle. It's not just a battle between the consumer and the retailer, but your guru says that it's actually a three-way battle. There's the consumers, there's the retailer, and there's Amazon. Amazon just has so much data at their disposal. And with that data, it exerts a gravitational pull of all this talent. These, these really, really top-level economists are going there and not only using the data to say, like, what can we see about basically, you know, where we should price things and when and what hour. And in some cases, it seems like personalize it to your own shopping history. If you came from a bargain hunting website and they think you're sort of a bargain hunter, they will sometimes offer you a lower price. Some studies show. Amazon says it doesn't do this. Well, that's what I wanted to push on. Amazon says that its price changes are, quote, not attempts to gather data on customer spending habits, but rather they're just trying to give shoppers the lowest price out there. What, what do you think about that? A few years back, they did admit to running price experiments. Price experiments. That's a scary phrase. Yes. And so it's kind of weird to think that in buying, you know, a seasonal pie ingredient, pumpkin spice, you might be part of a, a social experiment. In Econ 101, if you, if you go back, they had the concept of 
elasticity of demand. Basically, if you raise the price, how much does sales fall off? But retailers, for most of existence, have just been, just kind of had to guess. Now they can actually, well, let's try it at this level. Let's measure the demand. What's what's the optimal? So we've moved from Econ 101, and I never took an Econ class, to John Nash's Beautiful Mind and Game Theory, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's, is that a way to think about it? Yes. They're literally using Game Theory in some of their, in some of their models. Let's back up and go back to some of pricing history, which you lay out in your story in such an interesting way. But how did the price tag come into being in the first place? Well, this is an interesting question. And as I was reporting the story, I, I thought, well, prices have always been fixed. And I thought, is that true? And I went back and it turns out not true. Price tag was invented sometime in the 1860s. Probably it's credited to John Wanamaker. Wanamaker's in Philadelphia is one of the first big department stores. And uh, he was a Presbyterian, but operating in a Quaker city. And Quakers, including another Quaker, was Roland H. Macy of Macy's, didn't believe in offering different prices to different people. They thought it was, Because they thought it was immoral? They thought it was immoral. Interesting. So Wanamaker opened his, quote-unquote, Grand Depot under the principle of he called One Price to All, No Favoritism. And this was soon copied, not for moral reasons, but for economic reasons by others. In the very beginning of department stores, basically they tried to train everyone in the art of haggling, which is how everything was done up to that point. And in fact, there was no price tags on goods. Sometimes they would have cryptic symbols that would let the salesman or saleswoman know what the cost of the good was and what should their sort of walk away point be. And only they could decipher these symbols. But as these stores they found it basically impossible to train thousands of people in the art of haggling. Just as they scaled up and became huger, it allowed them to advertise fixed prices in newspapers, allowed them to hire floor people, da 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 So a price tag was a move toward a more efficient economy in a sense, at least yes. at that time. You know, in doing that, retailers sort of gave up a little bit of their power to kind of extract the last farthing that a shopper might be willing to give up on a given day. Right. But maybe they made it back on the shopper who was not so intent or skilled at extracting the last farthing, right? Right. Right. Which brings us back a little bit to where we are today. So what does this concept now from moving from the fixed price tag to personalized pricing, how would you explain that concept? I would explain it as there was a sort of a truce that reigned after the invention of the price tag that basically between the consumer and retailers, in fact, there was a French sociologist who had a theory that the marketplace was a battle and a, a price was the negotiated truce and the outcome. And there was a few sort of asterisks to this truce, so like you could clip coupons, you know, as a way if you were more motivated, companies differentiated higher end things, lower end things. But basically... The people who broke the truce are us, the consumer, shoppers. And you know, I was at a shoe store the other day and a woman said, you know, yesterday someone was in here and they were trying on a shoe. While they were sitting in there, went online and bought the shoes on Amazon. And just walked out of the store. And just and walked said, out of the store that brazenly. Did, did the person at least say sorry? To waste no. Your, no, not even no. an apology. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm feeling sorry for retailers right now. <laughs> so, I mean, this has a lot... You know, with just sort of what's going on in storefronts right now and what they call showrooming, walking around with armed with all this information, basically sort of 
strips a lot of places of their pricing power to ask anything above what is the lowest rate out there. So you see retailers' response as having been driven by necessity. This breaking of the truce began with consumers, and now retailers are fighting back. Is that the right way to think about it? Essentially, yes. And that they're staring back through the screen in comparison shopping us and trying to figure out what is our walkaway point. Because there's something also in economics called the consumer surplus. Consumer surplus is basically money you would have been willing to spend if the price had been higher, but you didn't have to spend it because the price was set at whatever, $7. But the consumer surplus is like if you would have been willing to pay $12, that's $5 right there. Does the surplus go to the consumer's wallet or does the surplus just get spent elsewhere because the consumer sees it as free money? Just gets spent elsewhere. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so how much of a surplus is it actually? Right. Exactly. Retailers are now trying to find ways to make more of the surplus their own. So one expert said this, that in five to 10 years, everything you buy will be based on personalized offers. Everything. Do you think that's true or do you think that's an overstatement? You know, that's a great question. And I think in reporting this, the issue of fairness, you know, this comes up, you know, if you're you're sitting on, on an airplane and the person next to you is paid less, there's an element and us that kind of objects to that. That said, as someone pointed out, fairness is sort of a social construct. And it's possible that our notions of this could change. I mean, for instance, with stocks, if someone bought Microsoft stock at 40 and you bought it at 90, you don't hold anything against. Right. Right. But going back to your pricing Macy, right, who thought it was immoral, how do you think about that? Do you think it's immoral for consumers to pay different prices? For instance, if you buy a Mercedes, should the diapers you're buying for your kid cost more than the diapers somebody who drives a Hyundai is paying? I don't know. I honestly don't know. There is, I think, if there's a degree of transparency, what's going on, then I think maybe it's fair where I think some of the things that really raise my eyebrows are, are where they're doing things and profiling you in ways based on like the fact that you have been browsing elsewhere um, that some retailers have been accused of doing this. But can it be fair given that when we're talking about retailers manipulating prices, we're not really talking about human head buyers manipulating prices. We're talking about algorithms manipulating prices based on big data, right? So how how transparent can it be? Doesn't that fly in the face of transparency? Yes. <laughs> yes, in, 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 in a word. Point conceded. <laughs> yes. And actually what kind of troubles me is that when some of these sort of irregularities surface, Amazon and other places can very easily say, we're sorry there was line in the ointment. There was something bad with the algorithm. The algorithm's at fault. Yeah. It was unintended. And we will never know. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. And it almost doesn't matter if it, it was unintentional. It's a little bit like the malfunctioning robot Hal, right? If Hal is malfunctioning, does it matter why? Exactly. When reading through this, I was fascinated to find that sometimes Yahoo Finance did a piece on how clothing prices are affected by this too. And a dress that's available in a size small might cost more in a size large. And that seems maybe there's a lot of big data going into why that's happening, but doesn't that just seem wrong on the surface? Or are we just are we just living in an old construct? Well, interestingly, the, the, the technical economics term for this is price discrimination, which economists use not in the way that you and I mean discrimination, but it's a great question. Like, is this basically discrimination? There was 
three researchers in Spain who did an interesting study where they set up three different sort of phony personas based in different places in the U.S. Basically, these were like dummy terminals where one of them just did a whole bunch of bargain shopping for, you know, a couple of weeks. One of them looked at high-end goods and the third was somewhere in between. And they found indeed that these people got offered different prices even when they typed in on the search engine, like different products would be shown to them. Wow. So I think there is something kind of a haunting and spooky about the unknowability. It's almost sort of like Heisenberg's uncertainty. If you can't know where the electron is just by the very fact you're looking at it, in some cases, you know, the price could really not exist until you look at it. And the act of looking at it sort of creates the price. So I think there's going to be, have to, we're going to have to think about this a lot. That's actually fascinating because it all does, once again, I mean, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle couldn't be more removed from your concept of transparency, right? The price not existing until you look at it is, again, the opposite of transparent. And that's the thing we all feel like if we could just understand why, right? Exactly. And here's the thing is there's studies showing that even when people are shown their own irrational biases, that they still don't adjust. Like we are just suckers for seeing 20% off, 30% off. And, you know, the work by Kahneman and Tversky, which has been heavily used in this field, that we hate the feeling of loss. We want to avoid that. And when we see the possibility of a deal going away, we experience that as a possible loss. And there's been these studies showing that we are hardwired to jump at the feeling that we've won, even if economically we end up with fewer dollars at the end. Well, that's part of what made eBay so compelling, right? You won, which all that it meant was that you were willing to pay more than anybody else. Yes. (laughs) But you won. You write about another fascinating concept that existed in the old world of retail as well. So, but the left digit bias, just touch on what that is. The left digit bias. So in the dark ages before there was any data available, I was talking to uh, an economist who used to teach at University of Chicago back in the early 1980s. And they acquired data from the new scanners at the grocery chain Jewel. And he said it overturned a lot of what he'd been teaching in class. For instance, he'd been teaching that the notion that pricing something at $299 or $298 increased sales was a myth. He said actually it was an artifact from the days when retailers were suspicious of cashiers taking something out. It forced them to make change so they wouldn't pocket any money themselves. Well, he says they got the data and he says it turned out the effect was huge. That $299 will sell a lot on, especially on on a car, you know, maybe not so, but on a can of tuna or cheese. Exactly. And that just basically gets to our kind of limited attention span or our ability to process that much information. We can't function like a computer. We walk into a store, and so we pay the greatest attention to the most important digit, which is the one on the left. And grocers for years have known this, which is why for for decades or for, for time, you know, time out of mind, they, they've known to set the price of milk and eggs quite low because they know that people have a pretty good fix on what that price should be. And so they use that to as a proxy to be like, is this place price well or not. And then knowing that they're not going to be as comparative or scrutinize the numbers of other products as much. 
So the interesting point there, too, is that it's not like this old world was perfectly fair to consumers. We were getting we were getting scammed in the old world, perhaps just in a different way than we are in the new world. Yeah, but in a much smaller way, like in a much smaller way. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I can see that paying two ninety nine or missing out on the slightly cheaper artichoke at the at the grocery store is a little bit different than having an entirely different price for an expensive dress presented to you online, right? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. There was another piece of data, more proof that man is not a rational animal in your piece that Amazon would drop prices on expensive items like TVs on Black Friday, and then that hike the price of the less expensive stuff needed, the cables, for instance, needed to connect the TV, knowing that we would not look as closely at we being the consumers would not look as closely at that, right? Exactly. There's, you bought the TV, now you do the cheaper add-ons, but there maybe the the loss margin could be made up hugely just in the price of cables. So they can figure out ways to take advantage of how uneconomic we actually are, how irrational we can be just in, on a whole new scale now than, than the old world. I mean, it's made me think about my own shopping habits. Like when do I stop to I don't, really- I don't always like to think about that, but, but go ahead. <laughs> But when do we stop and actually think about the price? And when do we just sort of buy it? Yeah, that looks right. And, you know, it varies hugely. And when do you, what makes you stop and think? When something's more expensive. I mean, if you're buying a house or a car, you're not going to be like, oh, it's it's only $9.99. That's, that's 10 you know, yeah. that's, <laughs> right. you know, just all the micro purchases that you do online where you've got your credit card out and, yeah, I'll, I'll buy this. Starbucks, great example. You know, people who then tally up how much, Starbucks coffee they've drunk in the past year and it's like $3,000. Right, right. And they could have paid a month of rent with their Starbucks bill. So back to this notion that it's a battle. Okay, I'm going to start with just us and retailers. Who's winning? After you reported this piece, did you feel like, oh, the well-educated consumer who's willing to invest time in price shopping can come out ahead in this game? Or did you feel like we're screwed? person who stuck with me most is someone knows a great, his name is Bonnie Patton. She's head of truthandadvertising.org. And I asked her about her own shopping habits sort of at the end of the interview, just like, what about yourself? And she said, uh, as a general matter, I find it so difficult to determine the actual price of the product that when she's shopping for her kids, she just makes all her decisions at the cashier. She just picks up clothes, doesn't think about pricing until she gets to the register. And if it comes out to be too much, she says, I don't want it. And then I asked, well, what about for yourself? And she says, well, I don't shop. For myself. I mean, what do you mean? She's like, I don't shop for myself. And she basically explained, like, this has gotten so crazy. It's 20% off of 50%. And this adds, like, I she can't handle the math. And she just, as a result, stopped buying things. <laughs> Her one good practical piece of advice is to just like ignore anything with a percentage symbol after it. Why percentage? Why do you ignore the percentage symbol? Percentage symbols speaks to our like human craving to win at a deal. But if you look in a lot of stores, you know, everything will be 20% off, 50% off, ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. The whole MSRP manufacturers suggest retail price. That increasingly is seen as kind of a joke. That the FTC doesn't enforce the rules. I mean, notionally, it has to be sold somewhere at the listed price. But the few times people have looked into it, often that product was never sold at its quote-unquote, list price. 
Okay, but wait, before we go back to that, so you're essentially telling me that you came out of this piece thinking the only way to win is to just drop out. There, there, there's no way to win other than just dro- drop out. I guess I stop looking at percentages. Okay. I just look at the dollar amount, which is hard. And thinking sometimes it's a huge percentage savings, but it's, it's a tiny dollar amount that you're saving. You know, I did all this extra work to save 75 cents. <laughs> So if you can maybe, as a consumer, level the playing field a little bit by ignoring percentages, perhaps by checking out, what about between the third combatant in this, Amazon? Who wins there between retailers and Amazon and us? If you had to rank them in order, what's... Amazon. Amazon wins. Amazon wins. So how does this play out? I mean, in the end, what retailers are trying to do, and I found this fascinating survey here, that retailers argued only 3% of retailers believe their current model is going to remain sustainable in the next five years. So they're trying to do this to survive too, right? And you can see, back to your point about economic irrationality, you can see how this doesn't win for them if they're just slashing prices in response to what Amazon's doing. So how does how does that aspect of it shake out? Well, Guru at, at Boomerang Commerce had a really sort of interesting and, and from a retailer's standpoint, scary chart. The title of it was, I think, The Crushing Point. And it was... That's frightening. It was a chart that showed like years from 1990 till now, and it mapped different categories like consumer electronics, books, toys, and the percent of those sales that move online. And what it showed, and then it lists bankruptcies in each sector. So Circuit City, that kind of thing, Toys R Us, so-called category killers who are now being killed themselves. It happens around the 25% mark. So 25% of sales are online and in that industry, and that means the retailers start to go bankrupt. Yes, because the consumers at that point have so much power and so much power to to comparison price online, comparison shop online, that it's just, um, it usually sets off a vicious cycle. Like they start cutting prices, cutting back on staff, cutting back Radio Shack got trapped in this kind of cycle. They offered really cheap batteries for a long time, but that just killed their margins. And meanwhile, you're taking away all the things that would drive people to a physical store in the first place, like some customer service, you know, the human touch. So if retailers are going to win at this game or have a chance, it's going to be online. They're they're not going to win in a physical setting. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if, if the past proves anything, it's that we don't know what's coming in the future. <laughs> if, past, if, past, if past is prologue, who the hell knows, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, but I... I I talked to one interesting company called Everlane. And so they did this thing where they were like, we're going to be radically transparent about our costs. And on their website, they say, well, we're making this pashmina shawl, da-da-da-da. And it's, the price is increasing, but that's because of the following things are happening in Mongolia. And so that's why we're increasing the price. They don't do discounts. And their hope, and the CEO who I talked to was, you know, he was hopeful that this might work. He was sort of skeptical. Okay, you've used the word hope and hopeful. <laughs> hope is not a strategy. Who said that? Well. Um, <laughs> is this, is this, so is Everlane just the lone resistance and doomed resistance to this? Or do, you, or do you think they've got a chance? Well, there's been other cases where you see like pay what you want models. You know, Radiohead, Radiohead did that early with one of their albums. And yeah, and the findings on that are, are sort of, Interest, you know, like some people will actually 
pony up what they consider to be a fair amount of money. Maybe it's not unlike being in a museum where there's a suggested donation. I, I have no idea if that's a sustainable or doable thing, but it's being tried. So you're not really making any bets between who who comes out on top. It's just all a moving puzzle right that's, now. Yes. But it sounds like if you had to place your bets in one place, it would probably be on Amazon. Yes. Yes. So do you see, are there markets where it's different, where, where consumers have more likelihood of coming out on top? And are there markets, whether it's for online goods, where you're more likely to be suckered? Does it vary by category of purchase? For example, if clothing is for maybe more emotional and perhaps, I don't know, electronics are less emotional, that might be totally wrong. Would be for me, but maybe not for everybody. Yeah, I think the more it's a commodity and less specific, I mean, if it's a coat that you're only going to see at this one store, then we're probably less price sensitive to something than like getting a TV where there's a lot of places we can get a TV. And what do you think happens on the legal side? Do Have you seen any, did you hear of any cases being brought around this concept of discrimination or is it a murky area legally thus far? It is a murky area legally, to say the least. There was a famous case back in 2007. There was a California man, a bargain hunter, who he thought he had scored big when he found a patio set on overstock.com. When it showed up at his house, he's unpacking it and he notices there's a price tag on it. But it was a $999 that was on sale at Overstock for $449. The Walmart price was $247. That was on the price tag. Oops. Yeah. So our bargain, um, our bargain hunter doesn't feel so good at this point. Yes. So in fact, he had not scored the deal. He had thought he sued and actually won in a California judge awarded him $6.8 million in civil damages. Wow. Yeah, but these cases are fairly rare, and it takes, like, a, a lot of— In that case, they got access to internal emails of the company where it made clear that they were aware of what was going on. But it comes back to this point you made earlier about the MSRP, or Manufacturer Suggested Retail Price, even in the old world not being all it was cracked up to be, right? Exactly, uh, yes. So— well, thank you. I think I'm going to be far more frightened and aware in my online shopping from now on. <laughs> and thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, that Overstock lawsuit raises an interesting prospect. Maybe we can win back the money we're losing to newly empowered retailers by filing lawsuits. I'm kidding, of course. But the questions raised by this are pretty disturbing and even profound. How can we keep ourselves from being, yes, suckered by retailers? Can most retailers find a way to compete with Amazon? And is this brave new world what any of us would consider fair? My takeaway, there are no easy answers. Stay tuned and shop smart. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Laura Hyde. My executive producers are Allison McLean, No Relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Rostkowski. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for listening. Find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know which episodes you've most enjoyed. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. 
This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Wow.